Uh, uh, yeah, I am the famous, famous author of uh, the least sold book in the nation. Well, uh, I just, the, got, I just got a couple questions here. I just, uh, I'm just here with the uh, the Butt Lake podcast, and I uh, just had some questions about your literary adventure, sir. Is it is a question about italics? Because I have plenty of italics for you. Yeah, the question actually is: it's about italics. It's also about dogs. Did you see recently in the New Yorker? Uh, that Carl Ova Kanausagar Dirty Swedish uh, chef guy from the Muppets, wrote something about how no good author has ever uh, owned a dog. Oh, whew, I thought you were going to say no good author has ever written a book where a dog is killed. <laughs> I was like, fuck, fuck, killing them doggies. Yeah, you figured that out last time. Keaton hates Kill them dogs. Case hates them dogs. Kill a horse, and it's dollar signs. Kill a dog, your box office poison. Yeah, Amityville Horror. That was a bad one. He like tore that dog up. I don't hate dogs. I was just, I was just trolling a little bit because dogs were so beloved in the in the nineties in film. Mm-hmm. Remember that rash of movies where dogs were like miraculously would would not die, and people would cheer in the audience, and it started this whole trend of, you know, I don't. I don't care if a person dies, but if you kill a dog on screen, that's a deal breaker. Have you ever been to a movie theater where people have actually cheered? Yeah. Fucking Independence Day. When that stupid dog jumps and breaks the laws of physics and the fireball doesn't get it. Remember (laughs) in the tunnel? Yeah. All the shit, the fireball's rolling, and and what's her name? Uh, Will Smith's wife. She's like hiding in some little uh, cubby hole. Mm-hmm. And the fucking uh, fireball is coming and it's coming in the dog. And they're like, come on, Benji, what the fucking dog's name is. And it, at the last minute, it does this jump and the fireball goes by because fire turns corners like a person, you see. Yeah, you know, the but, 90s were kind of full of that, actually. The 90s were full of just. The 90s were full of fire that didn't make any sense. I think The, the Rock had a lot of just inexplicable fire physics. Like fire that goes over your head and you're like. And it turns around, it's like, where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that was also the heyday of explosions where people would just, that was the heyday of uh, explosions where people would just, like, walk away, which has now become a cliche and a trope. But back in the 90s, man, you had, like, Con Air and Desperado. All those fucking movies had explosions where the person was just, like, did not look back. It was just, you know, and of course, the I think that, that trope maybe got put to bed with the Hurt Locker. Because remember in the Hurt Locker, you know, he tries to run away from the bomb and it explodes, but like the shockwave explodes his skull. Suit. Yeah. Yeah. It just sort of squishes him in internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny that uh, thinking back, so much of that book, The Last Projector. Are we recording? Are you recording yeah. this? No, I'm, I've been recording it. fucking gold. All right. All right. Just making sure. I don't want to say anything. I try too hard at being <laughs> saved for posterity. Yeah, I was going to say the book that we created together, Last Projector, is a is a child of all these tropes, and it just occurs to me. There's a big sequence about like mocking the outrunning of fireball sequence, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> except the um, and there's like a fake catchphrase where the girl says, "Happy Veterinarians Day, motherfuckers," <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but it's they outrun the fireball and it's the same sort of thing where not quite like the Hurt Locker, but it's sad. I don't even remember what happens in that book, <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure something something happens where the fire the fireball still fucks everybody up. 
but I don't I don't remember. It feels like that was a million years ago. How much of the last projector do you remember? <laughs> I know a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> No, yeah. that, which means I'm just like everybody else. Like now that means officially no one knows what happened in that book. I was the last one with any memory of it. Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> now no one. Oh, well, shit. Yeah. What happens with the fireball, dude? It's at the drive-in, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it happens when he, he, busts, he busts through the screen, I think. Or does it? Is that when it happened? I don't even, you know what? I don't remember the end. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want you to say the plot out loud because it starts to sound really stupid. Like, and then he busts through the screen yeah. And he's like, they're like in the movie, but they're like in the movie theater. Right. No, don't right. do it. Okay, I won't. Well, we're here today. We are gathered here today uh, to discuss a film that you and I watched uh, very homoerotically last night. We uh, both turned on the movie at the exact same time so that we could send each other text messages during the film, like commentary. And Yeah, you're, and, you're officially my only relationship right now. <laughs> My wife is out of town, and that's that was like the only. I looked forward to it. I like I ate, so I got you know my dinner out of the way, so I was ready for it. And if it wouldn't have happened, I don't even know how I'd feel. <laughs> it wouldn't have went down. You would have just started fucking finding people who had unfriended you on Facebook and messaging them directly. <laughs> I would have just like passive aggressively started fucking with you on Facebook. Probably that's so. usually what I do. Oh, It'll that's true. Cash out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Beyond the Black Rainbow. We were mm-hmm. going to go in with, we were thinking about sending you in um, under the influence, allegedly, of some sort of alleged illegal substance. But then halfway through, one of your texts was, I'm so glad I didn't allegedly do that because yeah. that would be a really scary, scary thing. Yeah, no, you I was going to do like we did with Annihilation. Go ahead. So what's different about this than Annihilation? Annihilation is horrific, but this one doesn't offer you any comfort is that what was going on well okay so there's the idea that there's no comfort i think that when you uh are under the influence of a psychedelic substance there's this really um there's this kind of interesting thing that happens where your brain starts opening up different tunnels and kind of basically watching a movie or a tv show while you're tripping balls is kind of like watching like 85 different movies just sequenced together you kind of lose track of how a particular scene fits within the context of the thing this happened with annihilation too i think i mentioned it back then where you know when you're in the scene with the bear that screams like a woman that is the entire movie like that's that's what's been happening since the very beginning and then when they move on and, the, and Tessa Thompson Each turns moment. into a tree. Is that's like its own movie. So with uh, with Beyond the Black Rainbow. So oh, go ahead. That would be brutal. No, I was just going to agree with you that if every moment is its own thing, out of context, and whatever impact those moments might have, the Black Rainbow is might be fatal. Yeah, because <laughs> it's it's just it's just mean. Yeah, scene yeah. by scene. Yeah, exactly. It's mean, and I think it's also. Um, and we can talk about this a little bit later because it's the one real problem I have with the movie, but it's all, it's very, um, the scenes themselves are very long. They're kind of drawn out in a way that I think is meant to mimic, uh, an acid trip. The movie itself is kind of structured that way where scenes that shouldn't go on for as long as they do go on for a really long time. You'll notice, for example, at the very beginning when the, 
villain is interrogating the psychic chick, um, you'll notice that like those scenes are actually really fast. You know, he kind of says his thing and then it moves on, but the scenes themselves don't last very long. And then after he's done quote unquote interrogating the woman, which is basically him saying two or three lines and then it's over, he goes home and his, uh, I don't know, is that his maid is sleeping on the couch? And I think it's his wife. Oh, his wife. Okay. Well, his wife is sleeping on the couch and he's kind of looking at her for a really long time. And their kind of dialogue exchange goes on much longer than where we would actually, the the conversation that we actually want to see happen. So there's this manipulation of time going on. There's this time dilation with scenes that I think would be fucking torturous under the influence of mushrooms. That's interesting. Because that's the exact stuff that you loved in the Twin Peaks revival. Yep. Um, here, is it, is, does David Lynch offer like a kindly hammock to those sorts of situations? Like you feel like you're in good hands where this, when, this yeah. when he starts to stretch, you feel like you're in good hands. You feel like you're in danger. Right. But the movie's not going to, the movie's not going to fulfill any sort of promise. Not that Lynch is predictable, but we have a long history of Lynch and we kind of feel like we were confident when he starts to stretch the day mm-hmm. this new this guy's a you know new kid on the block and uh he's scary he's mm-hmm. like uh what's his name Renf. Renf. how do you say that nicholas Renf. oh nicholas like Griffin. Are... yeah 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 whatever you say that fucking there's no telling what those guys will do so you have no um you don't have any confidence that that scene is going to let you off the hook or satisfy or or that you can even indulge in the clock ticking away is mm-hmm. that Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty close to it. And there's there's a lot about that that I want to pick apart. I want to actually like put a pin in that and come back to it. Uh, hope you like my little academic language there. But uh, I like that. We should probably. Do you want me to give a background of the movie? That's exactly what um, I was thinking. People, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just people were saying they really wanted context from us, and we just keep not giving it to them. We did it once. <laughs> And and I got people saying, we love that. Why don't you do that again? And then the next episode, we just started talking like we were in mid-conversation and gave no context. So cool. the the movie we watched was uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow by, what's the guy's name, Panos? Panos mm-hmm. Cosmatos? How do you, I don't even know how to say it. Uh, that sounds that right sound to me. right? Cosmatos? So he's, um, what's weird about him is he's a uh, he's, uh, Hollywood um child i guess uh he his dad is george cosmatos of uh, rambo first blood part two fame um and he's he's a real oddity like that guy even though he did rambo he also did some weird shit he did um he did cobra which seems like a direct line to i can't even say his name nicholas renfro how did you say it refin Cobra feels a lot like one of that guy's movies. And he talks about it being a big influence. So it's funny that that guy's dad influenced like Neon Demon and Only God Forgives, which are mm. definitely in the same ballpark. Yes. Whereas the guy's own son um, seems to have gone off on this tangent of that that vibe, kind of a more honest version of that vibe, but also um, kind of a more perverse slasher film version of that vibe mm-hmm, yeah like it, it really does feel like he's the result of 
of his his father's films. You've seen Rambo: First Blood Part Two, right? I have indeed. In fact, like, I've seen I've seen that. I've seen Cobra, and I was doing a little research on this movie, and apparently, it was funded by the DVD royalties for Tombstone. Tombstone, yeah, that's another one that that guy did. All those movies feel like they're like they're they're very down the middle kind of Hollywood movies, and then something weird is going on in them. Like Tombstone, there's a lot about Tombstone that is terrible, but you got Val Kilmer's performance in the middle of it, and which is what you know resonates, and that's what everybody remembers. If you watch that movie now, it's you just kind of got a limp from Lily Pad to Lily Pad, which is Val Kilmer because the movie's not great, mm-hmm. but it was a huge hit. I don't know if you remember when that came out. People were that came out. They did not screen it for critics. I remember when it was being released, and everybody's pumped. You know, it was a lot. Lots of authentic beards and westerns were very rare. Mm-hmm. So when you got one, people people got excited. It was one of the like third western uh, revivals that happened. Like Unforgiven was one of them, and this was supposed to be one of them. And then all of a sudden, it had the kiss of death, where it didn't come out. And Siskel and Ebert did one of the reviews on their show. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, they hid that movie from us. I guess they know they've got a bomb on their hands. Right. And uh, then they reviewed it and they said, wait, this is actually fascinating. Yeah. I can't believe they didn't let us see this. And they gave it a thumbs up. They said, it's a mess, but I can't believe they didn't let us see it. And that's kind of what Cobra is. And that's kind of what Rambo First Blood Part Two is. They're, they're almost satire. Yeah, you know, and, and they, it looks like the the son has inherited that from his dad because I personally, I mean, I loved this movie, but it is a complete mess. I just I want to interject real quick before we get off on a tangent. So, Beyond the Black Rainbow is a movie about oh yeah, I forgot to it up. plot right. summary. Real quick plot <laughs> summary is uh, it's about a woman who has been born in this kind of um. I would say probably like late 60s retro futurist lab. And she's a psychic. She can make people's heads explode. Um, But her powers are being kept at bay, stick with me here, by a giant triangular crystal in a room somewhere. And the movie kind of follows. You would think that she would be the protagonist of the film, but the protagonist is actually the psychologist slash uh, also patient of this sort of research facility it kind of at the beginning it sort of explains it it's a it's one of those hippy dippy heaven's gate type you know we're through the use of holistic medicines we're going to cure cancer prolong life that kind of thing um but but of course somewhere along the lines it went horribly wrong and there are mutated creatures in it and shit like that but basically the movie follows um this guy as he slowly the the effects of his um early drug experiments begin kind of taking hold of him and he sort of loses his mind and he has this sort of obsession with this with this girl that's a little bit on the heavy-handed side but that's that's the basic plot of the movie right so then she kind of like she sort of busts out and there's this the the final third of the movie is this kind of um house of horrors type thing where she's going from room to room and encountering various and sundry strange creatures and and then you know obviously it leads up to an inevitable confrontation and then from here on out there will probably be spoilers so i would say go watch it that's my quick little capsule is it this movie is very extremely almost good yeah yeah definitely falls right into the almost good category but yeah the um 
it, it's very much like uh, early Cronenberg. Uh, he must love Cronenberg stuff. Like Cronenberg has these um, uh, mini movies he did um, before he did uh, he did like a race car movie, and then he finally started to make his real Cronenbergy movies. You know, like Scanners and Videodrome. But he had all these movies about like institutes where strange things are being done and all sorts of boilerplate, uh, that new age talk you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Like Cronenberg loved that shit. And then uh, experiments that have kind of gone awry and the brood was his version of like perfecting that formula. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's weird if you talk, call the guy, the protagonist, because I think you're right. I, I hadn't considered that, that might be one of the both flaws and one of the fascinating things about this movie is he doesn't care or didn't try enough to make us connect with the girl who's being held captive. Right. We follow, we're almost totally in the head of the, the murderer or the, the psychotic, the, the guy who's um, exposed as an actual monster. And it's, it's in a way it's like the vanishing um, where it stays, people didn't like the vanishing because it was so much on. Um, it was said, let's show the serial killer's process like to a fault. Um, and this doesn't show like anything as tangible as that. We spent a lot of time with a crazy person. Um, so if you don't want to do that, I don't know if you'd enjoy the movie because you're, <laughs> you're right. The girl is like an afterthought. Yeah, she really is. And that's why it feels so unbalanced. Yeah, yeah, and that but that unbalance I think is what really makes the movie interesting. So I guess the the first kind of thing that I wanted to talk about was uh the visual style of the movie and how it does something. I I mentioned this to you in our uh beautiful email correspondence. Um so the movie came out in 2010 which was smack dab in the middle of that kind of grindhouse revival. Remember we had like Hobo with a shotgun come out and, right, uh, right, right. and it all kind of comes from that grindhouse double feature death proof and planet terror that uh tarantino and rodriguez put sure out. so what all those movies kind of had in common and what that sort of whole revival was is yeah you had the grainy film and the jump cuts and the cigarette burns and things like that but what they were doing what tarantino and rodriguez did and what kicked off that whole sort of quote-unquote revival was this sort of making those ugly corny tropes cool for lack of a better term and it was done by putting an ironic distance between the yeah original thing that was being copied and the new cool thing that was co-opting it but what i found so compelling about um beyond the black rainbow is that he's taking these tropes like let's say for example really bad acting, (laughs) Um, some kind of like really sort of weird clunky framing, a lot of practical effects, but he's kind of forcing the viewer, I think, to sort of confront these things on their own terms. He hasn't aestheticized these um, things that made the genre what the genre was. So in a way, by watching it, he's saying like, I'm not going to make this quote unquote cool. I'm just using the the, the toolkit that the genre gives me and they're cool in and of themselves, not because I've turned them into a Tarantino pastiche. Yeah, no, I totally agree. The, uh, the Tarantino stuff and the Rodriguez stuff, you know, all the, the, gr- the scratches they put on the film and the missing reels and the cigarette burns and stuff. Um, I thought those are a lot of fun. Those are amazing. Sure. You know, at the time that was a lot of fun. 
but it's it's artificial in a way that this isn't because this guy is actually using just like this beautiful 35 millimeter grainy film. He's using an old like Moog synthesizer or something. I don't know what exactly that music was, Yeah. but they're, the, those are very sincere um, tropes, I guess. Cause he's, he's not like, I gotta go back and take my $10 million movie and make it look like shit. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to make this look as beautiful as I can with what I have, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the spare change from Tombstone. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and uh, I think that it's like, it's it might be a mistake to read too deep into this, but I read in an interview after I watched the movie that he constructed this film based on, he would go as a kid to video stores and he would look at the horror section and the sci-fi section and movies that he never rented, he would construct plots in his head around the covers, Right. Uh, and I thought that that was a real kind of key to sort of getting what's going on in this movie. Cause it does, it feels like in a way you are sort of walking through a video store, but I don't know how to put this, but it doesn't feel cynical. It feels, it, I don't know. It just, the movie yeah, feels very sincere I, to me. I love that explanation. That's, that's exactly the kind of interview answer. That's probably half bullshit, Yeah, but it's also, I, I also, I totally believe it because Think about how interesting that is. It's fascinating because he doesn't exactly say it's this is a movie um, based on these based on these boxes I saw and I never watched the movies. What he's kind of saying, like if I'm gonna maybe misinterpret it, but you remember how those boxes, the artwork was always way better than the movie totally. back in the eighties. Yeah. So you get this, you get these paintings of these sci-fi worlds, and you wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. You didn't get that world. It was one, I think it was called Deathstalker. Uh, it had like some sort of um, giant creature with this uh, kind of dinosaur head with a big battle axe or something. I was like, holy shit. It's like none of that stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, Roger Corman movies used to be that way too. Like Car- I remember Carnosaur yeah. was like that, where I was like, Carnosaur, this is going to be sick. And then you watch the movie and you're like, oh no, this is fucking bad. <laughs> yeah, none of it, because they got a great artist and it looks great. So it's, um, it's interesting to think of it as... Like this is his attempt to more closely resemble the abstract, way better artwork you never got, mm-hmm. because this is what one of those movies might look like. Like if you get some really trippy art, you know, you get like a triangle and a fucking void and something weird going on. Kind of like the actually the actual cover of this DVD. You'd think, man, I wish I got that, but instead I got you know a couple assholes in a lab and it was on fire or whatever. But instead, we got that. We got the mm-hmm. mysterious triangle. We got the prog rock video with no real narrative dude i mean the conventional narrative is it's kind of what he was what you got when the art was almost always deceptive and i think he um he that it's him maybe giving his old self what uh, was promised even though he didn't get that disappointment you said he wasn't allowed to watch those movies i guess I, well what he the way he put it in the interview was that he just he never it was movies that he had he never watched right now i don't know if that means that he went back and eventually watched them but he's coming from the perspective you know that he was a child at the time obviously you know you're not allowed to watch certain things or what have you that's a great story because he doesn't get the disappointment so he has this pure vision of what an 80s movie looks like and it does not resemble an 80s movie i mean it it does almost too much Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense yeah, because he doesn't—he hasn't been filtered through watching them. 
if that's, you know, I'm going to really run with his stupid answer to that interview question because <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. No, yeah, I. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like, I think I've brought it up on this podcast before, but reading uh, Mark Fisher's essays about kind of uh, future nostalgia, right? And about the, um, sorry, my mother is calling me. I'll call mom back here in a second. Um, it's, it, no, Mark, that's, she was calling me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, so he, he would write about um, how music in particular had this quality about it in the 90s of being kind of melancholy, but melancholy in a way that it was like we were beginning to see that the future was not what we had been promised. And so there was this sort of nostalgia for a time that never existed that was cropping up in art. And Beyond the Black Rainbow is that 100%. You feel this like achy, achy nostalgia. And it's it ties into that answer, I think, because he is sort of like, he's a grown up now. And the promise of the 80s, the promise of all those movies that never got fulfilled is in every kind of shot and, you know, Moog synthesis, the, the Goblin-esque soundtrack, right? It's it, right. everything is just kind of packed full of like all these promises that were sort of like never fulfilled for him. And it ends up being just like a really like pretty movie. Yeah, I like that interpretation. It's like um, there was a bit that George Carlin did uh, where he—I don't remember the exact joke—but the joke was about like stupid people that will take dangerous jobs just if they had a job. And so the punchline was, "I'll take a little asbestos if I can have a job." Yeah. And basically, when I was watching this movie, um, I, don't, I texted you something similar, maybe. But I was thinking, man, I'll take a little no plot and baffling movie if I get a little film grain and synthesizers. <laughs> yeah, like, that's dude. all I want. Right. Right. Like no, a little, me too. give me a little grain, give me a little synthesizers, and I'm like a fucking duck in water. Right. You yeah. Could, he could. He kept me. He kept me satisfied and fooled for two thirds of that movie, and then it turned into another movie. It turned into apparently its own sequel. Yeah. That Mandy movie. Yeah. Yeah. So no, you're I don't right. know what's going on. We're watching him in watching him in real time figure out how to make movies. I fucking love that though. I love that kind of where you can see the strings very clearly. Um, the first uh, third of the movie is an absolutely, to my mind, just brilliant kind of exercise in color and tone and music. And, you know, it's got that fucking trippy triangle and all this. I think the first thing is where that fucking, there's just like smoke comes in and it just, this big rock and roll scene comes in because the, uh, the, what is it? The sentient, the sentient has been summoned. Yeah, and it's this yeah. creature. This creature, um, some sort of security force or yeah, something. Yeah, and like this activate. fucking speed racer Akira red outfit, you know, that's like standing in front of all these mirrors. And it's just, it's like this <laughs> prog video that doesn't. It makes no sense, but I was just so on board with it aesthetically, and I'm like, this movie fucking rules. Then the second third of the movie takes a completely baffling turn and our, I guess, hero, um, the therapist, nutbag, rapist guy, um, he, you kind of just sort of get this weird scene where he's talking to his mentor and shooting him up with a bunch of heroin or something. And he has this flashback to where he lost it, right? Like he has his flashback to where he lost his mind and it's in 1966 and he's being dosed. And the guy, his, his mentor tells him, it's my favorite line of the movie. He's like, Bring back the motherlode, Barry. 
and, it's, and then and then he goes under, and it's this, these fucking uh, clay sculptures of his face that are like melting upwards, and there's a light that's going off on the end, and then he like emerges from this hole in the ground covered in black goop, and the whole thing is is the contrast is so high that you can barely make anything out except for the dude's hairline and eyeballs, and it's just this white screen with right. little floating eyeballs, and that to me was was also brilliant and amazing, but that is the part where I think I texted you and I'm like, oh, this would have absolutely terrified me <laughs> if I was tripping balls. I would have <laughs> lost my mind yeah. watching that. Yeah, your your text changed at that point. We were very excitable up till that point. We were sending, like, triangles. Oh, I love these triangles. We're going full triangle. <laughs> and then you were like, I'd, I'd be scared. I'm glad I'm sober. Exactly. The all caps went away. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, exactly. that that middle section is crazy because it's um, it, it's another movie. You know, he's got like mm. three movies in there. So that one, um, did. So I guess I, I I took it too literally. I I thought he was literally sent into some sort of hole. Right. But you're but you saying that was all drug induced. Oh, totally. Because it seemed like he. Okay. Because I like the idea that I mean I like the idea of some somebody going into a hole and you know seeing something they shouldn't see. And they come out, you know, in the in the fucking stories, you know, it's always been, and his hair went white. Right. Which I never really understood. Like, wouldn't it have to grow out white? Yeah. Like, it, his hair went, his hair went white a month later, you know, like, you, your hair doesn't grow that fast when you're scared. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but he comes out similar. He comes out with no hair mm-hmm. and no eyebrows and his eyes have turned black. Right. And normally that's the end of a movie. Normally that's where a, a movie ends because somebody has seen the fucking eye or whatever. They're, they've lost their shit and time to roll the credits. But this movie says, well, let's get a wig and some fake eyebrows and contacts and go about our day. Yeah. So now he's, he's the guy who's been corrupted by, you know, delving too deeply. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's very uneasily going to his sort of corporate job with his appliances. Isn't that what his wife said? Barry, where are your appliances? Appliances. Today? I love that. That was great. <laughs> so that's a, that's a weird turn of events. Like he's trying to keep it together or he's like, uh, is he something else among us at that point? Or is he just literally damaged? Has he been, you know, like yeah. what's that movie where, um, from beyond that Lovecraft movie where, this dude almost gets eaten by this thing and they pull him out to save him, but he comes out hairless, no hair, no eyebrows. Yeah. Yeah. And it it kind of makes you think, well, you, you survived, but at what price? Yeah. And that, that's <laughs> the movie know? where there's like that weird, like tentacle dick thing comes out of people's foreheads. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That was a Stuart Gordon movie, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So yeah, that, yeah, that that's was, actually that really was another good. one of those things where you, somebody saw, you know, you, I've seen it. Right. Right. Like, all you got to do is, is see it, and then this knowledge makes you like. What is Barry's deal? If he's our protagonist, the knowledge of what he saw when he was dosed or went into the hole was enough to make him love the girl, and because he's obsessed with her, right? We see the nurse find these kind of porny notes, mm-hmm. right? That he's and he's obsessed with the girl, and then he finds those two heavy metal guys at a campfire. He's like, "You fucker!" Yeah. So, so he he comes out of the hole with some attachment to the girl who was also born as part of those experiments. Mm-hmm. 
And he's try- is he trying to get psychic ability? He seems to be super powered in some way. He's very strong. Right. Um, yeah. I, th- I don't know. Is that just? I think he is super powered. I think that my my interpretation of the whole thing was that well he I think he he killed he killed the girl's mother, um, and I think that he yeah he's had this weird like attraction to that's probably the least interesting aspect of the entire thing which it's the only plot that this movie has to speak of which scientist who sees too much. Uh, eventually cracks under the you know kind of constraints of his job and decides to act on his um, impulses towards this prisoner that they have essentially. Um, which well, what's sad is it, it sounds like he's acting on his own his own issues. Um, wasn't that in, uh, I sent you a piece of that article where it talked about his his mom and his dad. His mother was an experimental artist. His right. dad was this guy kind of suffering in Hollywood. And, you know, this movie is about somebody who's, it's all about birth and it's all about living in a, in an environment that's not conducive to creativity or not conducive oh. to spirituality. Yeah. He kills his spiritual father. Like the, the guy, it's, it, didn't they say at the beginning, the Dr. Aboria's Institute and he kills Dr. Aboria, who I'm mm-hmm. guessing, cause it was hard to see those scenes, but I think that's the guy who put him in the hole. Right. So he kills his, very Blade Runner, you know. He kills the people that have birthed him. He kills his the mother of the girl. He kills his own wife. He just starts killing everyone involved in the institute, which would usually make you think to yourself, "That's telling the audience that the institute was evil." And Barry is cleaning the house, right? Mm-hmm. He's cleaning the house with these terrible experiments. But that's not really the case because now all of a sudden Barry puts on a rock and roll leather outfit, grabs a knife. It would not be out of place like on some fucking nerds TV stand, you know, those yeah. overly ornate knives. And then he goes on, on like a slasher spree. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what movie is this? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Which like, leads I thought to, he was, I, I thought he was, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I really do want to talk about the last like five minutes of the movie, which are completely inexplicable, right? You, you get to this scene where Bear, like the the girl has escaped from the um, compound and she's wandering through the woods, and there's a very kind of never ending story vibe to it. At least that's what I got from it. She's like walking in some mud, kind of reminded me of the swamps of sorrow, or that's what they are, right? Yeah. Um, and then she comes upon uh, these two. Well, actually, she doesn't come upon them. The the bad guy does, but there are these two sort of like '80s era metalheads. Who are sitting around a campfire yeah, like drinking and, beer? Yeah, like Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, and they're they're like smoking crack and fucking drinking beer, and they're like, you know, uh, one guy has this. This is the other thing that is kind of um, acidy about the movie is that people's reactions are either way over the top or incredibly understated. So Barry's constantly understated. Um, the nurse is understated until she takes this weird overstated action of like destroying the girl's picture of her mother that she keeps under her bed. And then these two metal guys are like sitting there and one guy says, I gotta go take a piss. And the other one's like, thanks for letting me know. And the other guy throws a beer can at his head and says like, fuck you asshole. And I'm like, that, that's the other thing where it's just like, it has no, it's on this kind of weird spectrum where it doesn't understand how people really uh act you know or like, i feel like we were that's what an interviewer should ask him about that scene because i feel like we were witnessing a very inside joke uh-huh. like if i was if i wanted to reach a little bit 
it seemed to me like that might have been, this is going to be a stretch, but what if those are two typical horror movie fans mm. and they've stumbled into the wrong movie? Yeah. And he's decided, and the director's like, I'm going to, if you think you're going to watch like a gore fest, I'm going to punish you for it by giving you exactly what you want. Right, right. Because <laughs> they don't, nobody has talked like these guys. The entire movie sounds like stereo instructions. Nobody has said words that sound remotely like human speech, mm. except for a little bit in the home. But most of it is very new agey, picky talk, right? Sure. Then you get to these two guys, and like you said, it's just jarring. You're like, who, who, who are these guys, and what is this movie? And the movie uh, punishes them severely. It's like the most overtly gory scenes, them getting murdered. He jams that weird knife like up through the guy's chin into his face, and it just mm-hmm. uh, like a fire hydrant of blood shooting out of his face. Right. That's not really the movie we thought we were in. And at this point, Barry... The guy, the scientist we followed, who looked pretty normal up until this point, has gone through one of those. I think I texted you like this is his Silence of the Lambs, I'd fuck me moment, yeah. where he's in the mirror. He slowly puts on his leather jacket. He gets his cool knife. He takes off his uh, his appliances. So now he looks kind of like Blue Sunshine, where he's bald with these blue or purple eyes. These he looks exactly irises. like Maynard James Keenan from Tool. He's a spitting image of, of Maynard from Tool. So he's all tooled out, and he's uh, he's killing these stoners in the woods, but for no real reason. Just it's like they stumbled into the wrong movie. They don't I affect anything. Yeah, no, I love I love the idea that that was the director's kind of final fuck you to if, if it was if film. it was. That's I like a, that interpretation. I, I haven't though. seen any any evidence of it. I don't know for sure, but it sure felt like it was him saying. Here, goons, <laughs> this is what you want. You're, at this point, you're probably bored. And uh, that's what's so weird about the trailer for his follow-up. Mandy seems to exist entirely in that campfire universe. It's, right. it's a full-on horror movie with a ton of those people. <laughs> right, right. And I think, so, I think that uh, – and then right after that scene is where uh, Barry meets his end. And is it what his legs get stuck? He trips on a branch and hits his head. Is this? There has to be a reason why his his demise is so anticlimactic. Because you've seen the girl explode a head before. It was a real that really cool I scene know. where she kills the nurse and, and he just go yeah. And Barry just falls it's on like a rock. Akira. He trips mid confrontation. He goes whoopsie. <laughs> and then they roll the and then they roll the credits and play. That's the only time it felt like it was trolling a bit. Uh-huh. It was a little like the, like the um, um, prefab cult movies that are imitating like the '80s. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of a goofy anticlimax, and then they played a really poppy song that did not fit the score at all. Yeah, ball, 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 but so maybe <laughs> kind of it kind of does that. And may who knows how frustrated you are by the end of a movie? We talked about this in one of the other episodes that movies are like actual miracles and whatever you get, you know, it's a miracle it ever got done. So who, who knows what's going to happen in those last few minutes? Cause that's when everybody's at the end of the rope right. and they're just trying to, trying to make sure it actually happens, you know? Right. Right. Um, yeah, no, so, I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of the ending, but I don't really care about endings in general. Um, I just was a little baffled by the, he hits his head on a rock. And then the girl kind of wanders across the street and there's like people watching TV and it's like, she's rejoining society. It's like, what, is it, what does it mean? It probably doesn't 
mean anything. That would be my guess. I I have a feeling that there is some there is something going on with that final third of the movie that feels um well, it's like you said, it feels like a different movie. It feels like the the first kind of two thirds were sort of abandoned, and we get this third thing, which I liked the House of Horrors stuff. I thought that was all cool, um, but yeah, once she gets out, I think it's kind of like, all right, well, what now? Because we already know that she can like explode heads, so <laughs> there yeah. really isn't any kind of thought that Barry even has a chance, you know? Uh, yeah. I have a couple theories about it. I don't know if, um, you know, uh, this is a movie where it's, it's totally up to the viewer to interpret it. And, and, uh, it doesn't sound like the director is going to push anybody in any direction as far as interpretation, but as far as the why of it, it feels a little bit like he, his powers are sort of physical, right? He seems to be a little, maybe a stronger than other people, mm-hmm. but he certainly isn't psychic. He doesn't, the um, the triangle that seems to affect Alina or Lena or whatever her name was, the girl, uh, does affect him, um, but he seems to be the result of the same experiment. And when we see Elena escaping and going through this house of horrors you described, we it reveals that the sentinels, these giant um, motorcycle-clad uh, giants, are just they have like a actual baby's face on them. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty horrific. And the, uh, there's like a zombie thing that's like a tongue shooting out on this dude. Those things are very affected by the triangle. They show the triangle flash and then like react and flip out. And, uh, so I think that that's saying that the, everybody in that place is a part of this experiment, um, in some way, like different levels of it going wrong, mm-hmm. except Barry is, uh, Barry's reaction is, is, or Barry's like enhancement is physical. And I think that's why that there's that moment when Elena uh, scanners the head of the nurse who messes with that picture. Um, that's her showing her psychic abilities. Then right after that, Barry goes home and kills his wife, but he does it by physically squashing her head. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the movie showing that his inferiority to Elena, like if this place is all about some sort of higher yearning for some sort of, uh, you know, psychic ability. Uh, he, he, he's like the ultimate failure. Mm. He's his, he does have some sort of change. He's gone through some change, but his change is physical. And I think it drives him to madness where he just starts to physically kill everyone he can find. He's not killing him in a psychic way, like Elaine, and he's not there's, it doesn't use any of those trippy effects when he's around. Instead, it's a slasher movie. He's killing them with a knife. He's mm-hmm. s- squeezing their heads until they're dead. And then he, his physical nature is kind of mocked at the end when he just trips and kills himself. Like he doesn't, unless maybe Elena is supposed to have done that to him. It's a little I hard to. So. It's kind of, it's kind of a rough movie. So it's a little ragged there. So we're not sure what happened. But that's my theory. Is like it's physical versus the mental and Barry takes the physical as far as he can go with the, you know, that rock and roll look he had at the end and Mm -hmm. kicking ass and killing people. And and the movie just sort of dismisses him as a lesser being. Um, I don't know. That's my interpretation. I don't know if it's holds water. I like it. I got nothing better than that. So I I like it. (laughs) 
It was, uh, what was I going to ask you something about? Um, are we supposed to get anything from that knife? He pulls it out of a weird sci-fi looking box, mm-hmm. calls it the, his devil's teardrop. Right. Is it just is it just a way for the director to say I want to send this guy on a knife killing spree? Um, how how can I connect it to my previous movie that you've been watching? Right. So they have to kind of they have to kind of tart it up. You know what I mean? Yeah, I is think it, I, I mean I think that a lot of the um, I think that a lot of the third act of the movie really is kind of driven by the necessity to find some kind of closure. So in a way, Beyond the Black Rainbow falls into the same trap that I've been complaining about for months now which is that as soon as the as the third act of a movie kicks in right um i start to feel anxiety because i can tell that characters stop being characters and they become tools within um like cogs in a wheel basically and it's so stark in this movie the movie is extremely clearly divided into thirds there there are three acts to the movie and they're all about the same length actually and I think that when you hit the third act, every problem that I complain about, even though I enjoyed it just from a purely visual sort of standpoint, but every problem that I that I have with movies becomes starkly clear, where it's like they don't know what to do with it exactly. They're like, what do we do? Can yeah. we send her through the... We have kind of an Alice in Wonderland thing where Barry's the Mad Hatter and she's Alice, right? And he's kind of got this weird sexual compulsion towards her. Um, but... I just, I really do think, and I hate to, I try as much as possible when I'm analyzing a movie to not say things like, oh, the writer just didn't know what to, he just didn't know what to do. Because I think that's kind of, it's cheap, right? It's kind of a cop out. Um, But I think that, I won't say that he didn't know what to do with it. I think that his kind of vision for the third, for the final third of the movie uh, just didn't really work for me on its terms. I think that... Mm -hmm. I wanted to see some kind of something. Like, I don't need to know what the triangle is, but, you know, the, so the triangle all of a sudden just doesn't, just stops work. You know what I mean? Like, it just gets shut down, and so she just leaves. You know what I mean? It's all very, like, yeah. oh, uh, this is what's happening now. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you said something interesting the other day when you said um, you feel the plot starting to happen. You don't like that. Right. You know, like the, when the plot kicks in. And that's happening right now with uh, Sharp Objects, where it has a very uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow first few episodes where it's all visuals. Mm-hmm. And um, did we talk about that, how the guy, uh, he seemed to, um, he, there was some arguments with the filmmakers or with the the writer. Uh, there was an interview with like Gillian Flynn. Oh, okay. Um, that uh, they have all the, it's based on a book and there's all this dialogue and stuff and they get there and the director says, this is great. I'm not going to use any of it. Mm-hmm. We're going to tell the story with visuals and all the actors and uh, writers. And they're like, wait, can we just please get some of these awesome words on the screen? And he's like, no, <laughs> Let's, we're going to do it all with just this shot of this tub, you know? Oh, and right. uh, I guess that that he finally, great, he, it sounds like he kicked that, he kicked that can as long as he could, and then he had to pick it up because now it's, I think, episode six is where I'm at, and the plot has come crashing in. Yeah, Like, uh, people have stopped, and they're looking at each other, and they're talking about what's happening. Mm. And I, I'm, both, I'm both satisfied by that because I want, you know, you crave it, but I also know that it's not making it better. Right, right. I know that I, I love the visuals, 
but the plot starts to happen. And I'm like, I, I do want these answers. Just like you want to know about the triangle mm-hmm. a little bit, but you also seem to really love it when it's going full triangle, right? Totally. I'm I not love, saying full anything. <laughs> full triangle. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I think you're right though, that the plot starts to happen and it feels, it just feels a little cheaper. Um, it's doing something a little different. Like I said, a knife shows up mm-hmm. that would not be out of place on some white martial arts nerds television. Right. It's one of those Klingon knives, you know? It's very Paul The campfire secret. Right? Yeah. They bring in a a very different movie there and, a, and even a literally a different soundtrack. They mm-hmm. show a close-up of a tape, of yeah. a mixtape, yeah. and I'll, like push play on it to play heavy metal music for us, saying you're not in that world anymore. Right. It just feels like there's whatever's going on there is intentional, and mm-hmm. we may never know who the fuck you is for. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I definitely, I would have to think about it. You know, I do have kind of sort of a random question. I, I was just thinking about this when you were mentioning, you know, plot kicking in, what have you. Can you remember the last time that you were watching a movie and you could feel the plot kicking in and it and it really worked? Like, what what's a movie, because I have, I have problems with this, but it might come down to my own aesthetics. I have trouble thinking mm-hmm. of movies where I enjoyed the last third more than the first two thirds. I'm thinking maybe, probably you, there, there will be blood, um, no country for old men, and those are the two that I can think of. Sorry to bother you. I one. have, no, I love this question because there's one that's the most glaring example, and I'm, I'm glad I thought of it just now because it I would have kicked myself if I didn't think of it in the moment. Kill Bill 1 and 2, dude. Kill Bill 1 and 2, Kill Bill 1 is just nothing but fights. It's all dessert. Kill Bill 2 is a talk fest. And when people ask him about it, because, you know, there's the uh, the version of it where it's all glued together as one movie, Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that can even exist. Because he's even said, he's like, you know, people say to me, why is Kill Bill 2 a bunch of people making sandwiches and talking the whole time? Mm -hmm. And he said, because I got done filming it, you know, he plays with the timeline. He's like, I got done where I got to the point where people started to have to talk about what was happening and they just started talking. And he's like, I, it's a different kind of thing and it's a different vibe. And Hmm. he, and I, and I kind of like it in, in a different way. When I first saw Kill Bill part two, I thought, fuck this. I do not need another conversation about Superman while this guy's making sandwiches. Mm -hmm. He's going to, and they have the final sword fight while they're sitting down. What the yeah, fuck? Right. Uh, but now that I think about it, I much prefer the second part. And I think it's because the first part is all dessert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was a different person back then where I liked a lot of dessert. But yeah. now I like I like it when they start talking. I like when there's long conversations about, you know, when one of the badass assassins in part two goes to work as a bouncer. And it's like... You know, boss is real shitty to him yeah it's like you're, all are you of a sudden people start you're about as useful as an asshole right here <laughs> right and those and it's just long conversations and that isn't that the is the training sequence in that one too it is you know and what's interesting about what you're saying um is maybe we can come up with like kind of a formula here where the typical film spends its first third establishing character setting uh, kind of like the 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 you know the world the second part introduces a problem right and then the third is kind of like the resolution and that's you know that's the 
basic story arc. But in terms of pace, you're supposed to speed up, speed up, speed up, speed up. But what you're saying with Kill Bill and what I think you could also see in something like No Country for Old Men, which is similar, it starts off as a genre thriller and then slows way down mm-hmm. in its last third, is yeah, actually, a good yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, maybe you should start off your movies with a fucking bang and they should be ripping through the first hour, hour, 10 minutes. And that last half hour is where everything slows down, not speeds up. It doesn't move towards some kind of like climax where, you know, you have to do the diehard thing where he's got the fucking gun taped mm-hmm. to his back or whatever, you know, but actually maybe a com- kind of compelling, for me at least, plot form would be this exact opposite where you start train spotting is another yeah. good example, right? Train spotting is a movie that starts off yeah. insane, like a music video. Uh, and by the last third, high energy, yeah, yeah. cranking the songs, lots of running. Right. And then, then reality it's, I think that you can probably map that on right when the baby dies. Everything right. after that is, a, is like uh, time to wake up, time right. to start talking. Right. You know, I love dialogue though. You know, I don't, I don't get frustrated when people talk a lot, but I, I do, um, I do miss it when something switches from all visuals like sharp objects has done. Now I don't know if it's going to, how it's going to end. I'm way behind on it. But I don't know if I'd like Kill Bill glued back together. I think mm-hmm. that I would miss that kinetic craziness of the first two hours, I guess. Yeah. And then when it's, they started talking and making sandwiches, I'd probably think, what? Right. But seeing them apart, seeing them a year apart or whatever, you know, six months apart, and now watching them separately as two, it's kind of like the usual illusion, one and two. Mm-hmm. I don't think gluing those together is a good idea. I think right. that, I like to think of them as two separate entities. Use Your Illusion 2 has, you know, kind of more countrified songs on it. I like it a lot. Or and, System of a Down's Hypnotize and Mesmerize, which were also released six months apart <laughs> and are make up one giant double album, but they're very different. That's from that's from I like my, these analogies. generation, yeah. I like these analogies. But the, I, not to take anything away from your analogy, but I do, I suddenly think Kill Bill 1 and 2 is Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Hmm. The first one's red. Fast songs, aggressive songs. Part two kind of has civil war and, you know, it gets a little talky. It gets a lot of those, mm-hmm. even Axl Rose had the balls to have, uh, you know, clips of Martin Luther King so he could equate his struggle of fucking groupies and people being mean to him to, like, the civil rights movement. <laughs> like, that's some, that's some fucking balls, dude. Yeah, it is. That's some fucking balls. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, it's nothing if not audacious there with that talky talky. 